Back then, of course, there was not tweeting, so he didn't do that. But until now, everything had been sweetness and light. So he sends his soldiers out to commit an atrocity worthy of almost Hitler. They are to break into every Jewish home in the region around Bethlehem, pull every male baby from their mother's arms, and cut their throats. Harold, at this time, is bitter and an old man. In the final years of his 41-year reign, he was fully capable of playing a role in these atrocities. And that's what I want to talk to you today about. We hear about this man, Herod. But what do we know? Do you know that the name Herod really means hero or son of a heroic? How ironic is that? There was nothing absolutely heroic about anything I could find in Herod's history as a leader or as a human being. History calls him Herod the Great. A more appropriate name might be Herod the Paranoid. This morning in Bible study, we talked a little bit about paranoia, about paranoia and what it means. But let me tell you about this man. During the course of his reign, Herod, Herod had at least nine wives and 14 children. And perhaps more, because of course, ladies, the daughter's births were never recorded. He put one of his lives, wife, Miriam Lee, on trial for adultery. Chief witness against the prosecution was her mother, who it is said testified against her daughter only because she feared for her own life. Herod executed his wife, which led her mother to declare herself queen, charging that Herod was mentally unfit to rule. Not a wise decision on her part, because you know what happened. Herod put her to death without a child. Talk about a dysfunctional family. There's more. There were two young sons remaining from this marriage to this woman, and as they grew older, the king considered them threats to his power. He sought to put them on trial for treason. But Emperor Augustus, who we heard about in scripture, put a stop to it by ordering the sons and the father to reconcile. A few years later, Herod outmaneuvered the emperor. He sent a huge financial donation to revive the Olympic Games. Yes, those Olympic Games that we see today. Something Augustus wanted very much. In exchange, the emperor allowed Herod to execute the two sons. Later, Augustus would Herod to mother, I would rather be Herod's dog than Herod's son. And that's still not all. After murdering his wife and his sons, he named his oldest son, Antipertia, the son of a child, child of another mother, the exclusive heir to the throne. But Herod could never tolerate a rival. He grew jealous of him, this last crown prince. So he put him on trial for, for treason like the others and had him executed. The emperor was so called that he to allow any of Herod's remaining sons to claim the title of king. Although three of them would eventually rule as something called tetrarchs, governing one-third of the king's 
rain. 33 years later, one of them, Herod Antipas, would look upon Jesus at last as he stood before him claiming, uh, wearing the crown of the throne. We don't know when it was that the Magi stopped at the palace to pay their courtesy visit, but it was certainly during the last turbulent year of this man's life, the year he executed his third son. Can any of us have any doubt that this man would have been at least no way hesitant to send the soldiers to kill the baby? Jesus, of course, we know, escaped that day. An angel of the Lord came to Joseph in a dream, warning him to take his family and flee to Egypt. They probably settled in Alexandria, which, which had a Jewish quarter, a great center of learning. It's possible that Jesus spent his early years there and learned the Talmud from the distinguished rabbis of the city. Surely, some of us, after hearing this story, find it troubling that God sends an angel to rescue Jesus, but lets those other little babies die. It's another facet of the thorny theological problem that we face so often in the world, the problem of evil. The question of why is as just and all-powerful God allows human suffering to take place. Why, oh God, why? Well, then and now, there's no easy answer to that philosophical question. But King Herod does seem well-suited to play the role of evil incarnate. So what's the takeaway? Should we reserve a role for Herod in next Sunday school play? I don't think so. Relax. It's just a rhetorical question. Herod doesn't belong in a children's story, but that doesn't mean that we should forget him entirely. He's important to the Christmas story because he helps us remember that we live in the kind of world then and the kind of world we live in now that still needs a Savior. Even if we all had a fine Christmas, there are plenty of neighbors on this planet whose lives are tainted with suffering. People to whom the least of their worries is whether or not they manage to get into the Christmas spirit. What about the refugees in Syria who are being displaced? Or what about those refugees in Syria, as I talked about earlier this morning, who live, who are surrounded by some of the oldest Christian churches in the world, and yet they cannot go to worship Christ? Yes, there is hope. In northern Syria this year, Christians were able to worship in churches at Christmas that in just October was used to house terrorists and weapons who wouldn't let Christians worship. But what about in this country? About those who are afflicted with poverty? Sure, lots of our neighbors had themselves a merry little Christmas, but a great many more had felt themselves far removed from the vision of perfection and peace that looks so good on Christmas cards. Jesus didn't come into this world to bring us a midwinter festival of peace and contentment. He wasn't born into a placid Christmas card scene, but rather into the sort of world 
where families wander homeless and corrupt tyrants ruled by murder and deceit. But at Christmas, along with the nice stuff about the birth of Jesus, we need to be reminded that Jesus didn't come to offer respite for the world. He came to save. As for us, the Christmas-weary disciples, we have a role in carrying out that mission, using the spiritual gifts that God has given us with whatever material resources we have at our disposal. Just last week, we at FPC brought a little light into Christmas for a few of our neighbors. On Thursday, we offered food to those in need. Yes, there are still so many in need, but we do what we can. So, what about this guy here? He did do some things. He solidified three factions of Israel at the time, but only through brute force and fear. He taxed everybody, and particularly the Israelites, trying to get out, trying to out-tax Rome by his, taxing his own people. And yet his castle, his temple will remember more than Solomon's temple. But in every drama, we have an antagonist. And I guess the underlying antagonist in the drama of the story of Christ is sin. But sin's leading role was played by Herod. Herod is the quintessential villain. He is Simon the Greek, Lex Luthor, Dark Vader and the Grinch all rolled into one. Herod is the Scrooge of the original Christmas story, but a Scrooge whose heart never melts. A Scrooge whose heart is never touched and remains hard as and cold as ice. He may be the one John Calvin, our forefather of our tradition, was thinking about when he came up with the theology of total depravity depravity of humanity. In all of Christian history, there may not be anyone as evil as him. So what's he doing in this Christmas story? How, does it, how did this despicable character get tied to the wonder and glory of heaven, touching earth through the birth of salvation, wrapped in swaddling clothes? Well, Herod, as you know, tried to snuff it out. He tried to get away with his new, he tried to do away with his newborn king. His paranoia caused, caused him to murder the hope of the world. So what can we learn? First, he reminds us of why Jesus came. A few years ago, a newspaper columnist, Mike Rocco, shared the other side of the Christmas story in one of his columns. He told about a stranger who put $1,600 in gold coins and a Salvation Army kettle. You know, those things that we see outside the store. The person placed the gift there quietly and anonymously. This is exactly the kind of story the print media is looking for to demonstrate the spirit of caring that Christmas brings about. But unfortunately, there was a follow-up story. The local Salvation Army officer began getting phone calls about the gold coins. The coins were stolen, and the thief had just dropped them in the kettle to get rid of them. So then Rocco told another story about a man driving home from work on Christmas Eve who saw a young boy 
fall through the ice at a nearby lake. The man stopped his car, jumped out, tore off his jacket, crawled over the ice. He managed somehow to save the drowning boy. Happy ending, wouldn't you say? No, because while the man is out on the ice, he discovered when he got back that while he was out there risking his life, someone in the crowd of onlookers stole his jacket and the envelope containing his Christmas bonus. <laughs> Talk about a bad ending. But unfortunately, we live in a sinful world. Even at Christmas, with the promise of peace and hope on our lips and in our hearts, sinfulness still was present. That sinfulness was personified in the first Christmas story in Herod. Go and search diligently for the child, he said to the wise man. And when you have found him, come and bring me word that I may worship him too. What a joke. Good thing God warned the wise men in a dream that they returned home by another route. So when he realized what had happened, you know what that led to. And so that's really what Herod the Great is not so great remember, is remembered for. In that one act, Herod reminds us why Jesus came. Herod also reminds us that sin blinds us. In one of his books, Marcus Bach told of a 16-year-old boy from Bishop, Texas, named Mark Whitaker. With a homemade telescope that cost him only $7.50 to build, Mark discovered a new comet. That's something few astronomers with their thousands of times more expensive telescopes ever accomplished. It was about 2 a.m. on his third night of sky watching that Mark spotted something he'd never seen before in the heavens. The next night, he traced the object again, and on the third night, he called a Harvard Observatory. Confirmation soon followed, and they named the comet Whitaker-Thomas, adding to Mark's name of the professional astronomer who helped the confirmation. Commenting on this extraordinary accomplishment, Mark has said, there is a law. It says that if you engage in a sky watch, you may see something. It does not say you will see something, but that you might. The wise men looked up and saw something, a star that led them to the infant Jesus, a star which led them to a savior and a king. Herod looked up through the filter of his paranoia, his greed, his sin, and his self-centeredness. Herod saw nothing. He was blinded by his own sin and could not see the salvation offered by God even for him. So Herod reminds us that we need Jesus. There is no better example of tragic abuse of power than the reality of sin that King Herod, uh, that he proposed. A baby born in a carpenter's family to an unwed mother, and yet his child grows to become king of kings the one who overcomes sin and death, the Savior who comes to give us hope, offers us eternal life, and brought about the forgiveness of our sins through the cross. So the story of the birth of this baby, Herod, who Herod rejected, reminds us that we need Jesus. The last Mike Iaconelli 
used to tell a story of a deacon in his church who wasn't a very good deacon. Unlike our deacons, he just didn't get what he was supposed to do as a deacon. One day, Mike, who was the pastor at the time, said to this deacon, I have a group of young people who are going to an old folks home to put on a worship service once a month. Would you drive them to the old folks home and can you at least do that? The deacon reluctantly agreed. The first Sunday, the deacon was at the old folks home. He was in the back with his arms folded, as you know, right across his chest as the kids were doing their thing up front. All of a sudden, someone was tugging at his arm. He looked down, and there was this old man in a wheelchair. He took hold of the old man's hand with the old, but he took, the old man in the wheelchair reached up and grabbed the deacon's hand and held it throughout the service. The next month that was repeated, the old man in the wheelchair came and held the hand of the deacon who looked very uncomfortable. And this went on month after month. Then one Sunday, the old man wasn't there. The deacon inquired and was told, oh, he's down the hall, the right-hand side, third door. He's dying. He's unconscious. But if you want to go down and pray over him, that's all right. Though the deacon went in, not having a clue as to what he was supposed to do. And there were tubes and wires hanging all over the place. The deacon took the old man's hand and prayed that God would receive the man, that God would bring this man from this life into the next and give him eternal blessings. As soon as he finished the prayer, the old man squeezed the deacon's hand and the deacon knew he had been heard. He was so moved by this that tears started running down his cheeks. He stumbled out of the room, and as he did, he bumped into a woman. She said, he's been waiting for you. He said that he didn't want to die until he had a chance to hold the hand of Jesus one more time. The deacon was amazed and horrified. He said, what do you mean? The man said, well, my father would say that once a month Jesus came to this place, he would take my hand and he would hold my hand for an hour. I don't want to die until I have the chance to hold the hand of Jesus one more time. Brothers and sisters, you never know what a touch, what a handshake can do. You know, you read the papers, you see that we still have the Herods around today. You know that we still need Jesus. We need what Jesus did for us and what he does for each for each one of us every day. We need the hope that only he can bring. We need forgiveness that only he can offer. We need the unconditional love that only he can share. We need the eternal life that only he can give. We need redemption that only he can promise. We need Jesus. We need Jesus in God and giving thanks for giving himself to us through Jesus. Many people, yes, some of you will exchange Christmas gifts this year. Some even today on your way home. Whenever you exchange your gifts or use your gifts, I hope you remember that the gift that you found under the tree this year or any other tree 
or any other year remains there. My prayer for you and for me is that we keep Christ in our lives, not only today, but for all. The Christ whose coming was and is a mystery. The Christ whose life is a miracle. The Christ whose ministry in word and deed and death is salvation. The Christ whose presence is now our highest hope and whose birth was the greatest act of generosity ever shown, one which nothing and no one, not even Herod the Paranoid, can say. My prayer for us today always comes from Isaiah. I will recount the gracious deeds of the Lord, the praiseworthy acts of the Lord, because of all that the Lord has done for us, and the great favor to the house of Israel, that he has shown them according to his mercy, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. May this prayer be yours and mine today and 